0: Hey, everybody, this is Dave Duncan. I'm here with Mako at Talking Blues. I'm a songwriter that uh, writes blues songs. I'm a blues guitar player. And I live in the decidedly un-blues location of Nashville, Tennessee. So I'm excited (laughs) to get started today.
1: Okay, so you were just in Memphis.
0: Yes. Was that a gig or was that something else? My daughter lives in Memphis. Okay. And we went over to uh, see her and give her some support. And we did go down to the Peabody and have a drink and went to Beale Street. And it was just lovely. You know, the best thing to do in Nashville, Tennessee right now is to go to Memphis. <laughs> Why is that? Memphis in the meantime. Nashville, the Broadway, lower Broadway has become a... Well, it's an alcoholic theme park, an alcohol theme park. There's all these bro country. I mean, every country star has got his own bar. I took Curtis down there the other day and you could hear 10 bands playing at once. It was like being in hell.
1: (laughs) Is it all country music?
0: No, it's all bro country. Uh, Really what it is is 90s rock and roll. You know, it's cover music now. When I first got to Nashville... Well, I've lived here twice, but let's say from 93 going forward. If you played cover songs, you were looked down on there.'re like, dude, it's Nashville. You got to have your own material here, you know. Now that's out the window, and these are all just loud cover bands, playing for tips, basically 18 hours a day. We call it Nash Vegas. So Music Row is very different than Lower Broadway in Nashville, and no one makes it from Lower Broadway. To music row it's two different scenes
1: and and sorry i don't know nashville at all um uh-huh. so what's the is music row is where the tourists would go or no there- no oh, that's there.
0: where the records label was oh, okay okay it's two rows 16th and 17th avenue and at one point they were doing i don't know five billion dollars a year of business you know in the garth brook era it was uh you know that's where all the business was being conducted and when I first got to town, you could, uh, these are all old houses from the 30s, basically, beautiful southern homes that have been converted into offices, so you could go knock on a door of one of these houses, and they would invite you in and say, play this original song, you know, there would be publishers and record labels, so if you had a song you were really proud of, you could go knock on the door, and they'd, you know, give you an appointment, and you'd play them your song, those days are long gone, but Music Row had a magic to it, and I lived one block off. And so all the business was done on just these two streets, all the recording studios, the publishing companies, the record labels, it was all right there in this little groovy village kind
1: of thing. <laughs> um, I want to get to why you got to Nashville. Um, but before we do, let me ask you, I'm, I've been, as you know, I've been to Memphis a few times. I've never been to Nashville. What's the difference between the
0: two places? Well, Nashville, as you know, I mean, the world's reputation is it's country music. Mm-hmm. Really what happens as the music got farther away from the Mississippi River and Mississippi, it got whiter. So there's no black influence. I, well, I shouldn't say no. There's a whole black community, obviously, here, right. of, of great, great musicians. But for Music Row and the business side of it was always the white country guys. It wasn't much black influence like there is in Memphis. So Memphis has got that whole soul history and Nashville has almost none of them. So it was it's all about business in Nashville. It's not so much about music. It's about the business of music.
1: As a player, I presume you play both cities. What's the difference between the two as a musician?
0: Well in Nashville there was I never drew very many people to my gigs in Nashville. So it was always for tips. And I don't know if it is in Memphis as much. I played more in Mississippi. Oh, okay. I just never really played. The tourist crowd in Nashville was more country. I'm not really from the country. You know, I grew up in Buffalo. And so I've always been more Memphis music, but it seemed like there was more business. I don't know. I moved here again in 93. I went to college here. Uh, in Murfreesboro Tennessee they had a degree in recording industry management so I was sitting in Arizona and I found this college that had a a degree in rock and roll and I was like I'm going there this will solve everything <laughs> So the, <laughs> that's how I graduated college and came to Tennessee and then I went back to Arizona and played with all kinds of people including Johnny Western Johnny Western wrote have gun will travel oh And sang that and and wrote the words to uh, Gunsmoke. It was a cowboy band. And so we played that every night. But I wanted to be in the Allman Brothers. You know, I was coming from the B.B. King side of the world. (laughs) I wasn't so much a a cowboy.
1: Okay. Did that happen in Arizona or did that
0: happen in Buffalo? No, that happened in Arizona. I didn't play music in Buffalo. I didn't play music growing up. I almost didn't know anybody that played music and my parents didn't listen to music. My brother was seven years older than me. He didn't turn me on to anything. I've essentially found the Grateful Dead, you know, and all that, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And then one day somehow I bought a record and it was Wilson Pickett and Sam and Dave. And I went, oh, that changed everything. You know, I was the first guy in my neighborhood that dug the Memphis soul music. How did you find that album? Uh, I have no idea. It found me, I guess. (laughs) Because I still didn't play music. So I wanted to get as far away from Buffalo as I could. And so as soon as I graduated high school, I moved to Arizona. I'd never been west of Cleveland, so I didn't know Arizona. It just was a long way from Buffalo on the map. It's like, I'm going. Uh, And then, you know, I'll tell you what happened. I went out in the desert one night and ate a bunch of mushrooms. A bunch of (laughs) And I had a cosmic experience and I realized the vibratory nature of the entire universe. I mean, I had a full cosmic awareness experience and I started playing music the next day. And that's where the whole thing started. So it's crazy because I don't have it. Most guys have music in their DNA and I don't really, I came to it from this other experience. And so all this, the whole thing is just a dream that I could go to Nashville and have songs recorded and the whole connection, the whole Curtis thing, the whole B.B. King thing. It's all just, it seems surreal to me.
1: Okay, so what what, what, happened, <laughs> what happened with those mushrooms? <laughs> like, how is it that you, What what happened during that trip that you said, I'm going to go out and get a guitar tomorrow? Well, I
0: was out in the desert at a lake, there's some lakes outside of Phoenix, and I was in the desert at a lake, and the lake was perfectly still, it was glass, and in Arizona, the Milky Way is, you know, wall to wall, so we were, I hadn't grown up in Buffalo, I'd never seen a full sky of stars. Right. And I realized, like I said, the vibratory nature of the universe, everything is vibrating at a different rate. Even solid things are vibrating. If you were at that vibrational level, you know, things go through solids. And so the whole nature of the universe and vibration and music, and and truthfully, I was really into Dwayne Allman. I was into the Allman Brothers. And I had that playing in the, the slide guitar, which of course is... Its own unique thing because it doesn't have a specific fret or location on it you know it's it's all intonation I don't know it was just all so overwhelming to me and I did I started playing slide guitar the next day and I was just the worst I mean I was already 19 (laughs) or 20 years old and it was like dude what the hell no so I spent a lot of time (laughs) in the woodshed it seemed and of course I ended up dropping out of college. My parents were completely, you know, you're throwing your life away as they said, it takes a real man to throw your life away and go into (laughs) the music business. So it was met with resistance and it was just, but it was so motivating to me. It was such a soulful experience. It was really the most real thing that had ever happened to me. You know, I was at one with the universe and at one with music and it was like, oh, this is motivating to me. I gotta have more of this. So okay. in a way, I would always say that it came and got me rather than me going. You know, it's like music came and plucked me out of the the crowd, it seemed like.
1: That's an amazing story. But I'd like to know how, once you decide I'm going to do this and buy a slide and a guitar and, and you, you're working on it and it's not really coming together and it sounds pretty bad, how you maintain that motivation? Like, did you, did you never question it? as soon as he made that decision?
0: Well, I was so attracted to it, and it was fun. You know, it's therapy. Playing music is very therapeutic for the human mind. And so uh, it was certainly a challenge. And I was still living in Phoenix. And just to you know add craziness to the story, well, I was a guitar player that didn't play all that well. <laughs> I didn't really, you know, everybody grew up with the catalog. Everyone knows all the Creedence Clearwater everything you would learn as a 14 year old guitar player, you learn every lick off every record. I didn't do any of that. So <laughs> I wasn't very valuable in the marketplace. And so of all things, I bought a pedal steel guitar. And I had a gig the first night I bought that thing because you know, there are not many steel guitar players. So that was a whole funny story. I played with some older guys in Phoenix and they knew all the 1950s country. I didn't know that, like from a Jack to a King or when the <laughs> blue moon turns gold or, you know, I didn't know these songs and I'm faking my way. And the, the guy keeps calling saying, you know, do you know Statue of a Fool? And, you know, I kept saying <laughs> no and they're giving me dirty looks. So finally, I think it was from a Jack to a King. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know it. he goes, kick it off. And I was like, oh, hell. <laughs> so be, uh, what key you do it in? The original key. so it was just sort of a it it was a low bar for entry and so I started playing steel guitar and all that was before I moved back to Tennessee to go to college which I told you I found this college that had a degree middle Tennessee State University in Murfreesboro Tennessee so that's how I got to Tennessee originally.
1: But What were you hoping to accomplish when you went to school in Tennessee?
0: Well, the first thing was I could graduate college and get my father off my back. <laughs> <laughs> I say that lovingly, but that was part of the motivation. But uh, they de- had a d- degree in recording industry management. You know, in Phoenix, I mean, again, I'm playing these, you know, bars with, old blue old country guys or whatever the gig was and so uh, being able to go get an education really what I focused on when I got there was uh, recording of course and publishing the publishing side of the industry is sort of mysterious and that's where the money actually is so uh, I was a hippie I had a dodge van and a and hair down to my butt and a labrador retriever and i talked like a yankee and we moved to this little town in tennessee and everybody said where are you from i'm not from around here so that was plenty weird but what happened is they said here's this kid there's a kid here in town you need to meet a guitar player and i said who's that he said jack pearson i said well i never heard of him where is he and they said well he's in texas with leroy parnell so i never heard of him either So about a month later, they come to town and it's the greatest band I've ever seen in my life. I'm slumped up against the back wall when they're done playing called Renegade. It was like seeing the Allman Brothers in a bar because they had two guitars. Well, long story short, Jack Pearson ends up in the Allman Brothers playing with Dickie Betts before Derek Trucks. Jack Pearson, Dickie Betts said, this is the most accomplished cat we ever played with. Jack was like the best guy in the band when he was in the Allman Brothers. He's been clean and sober for 40 years. He knows all of it. He plays... He can play exactly like Dwayne Allman. Greg Allman said, you play more like my brother than anyone ever has that's come down the pike." And Jack's so hip, he doesn't do it because he plays like himself. But he's the most Dwayne sounding guy you've ever heard in your life. And so... Somehow, mysteriously, I end up moving to this town in Tennessee, and I meet the greatest cat of all, because I was really into the Almond Brothers. And so I end up, he ends up years later being in the band, and I end up hanging with Greg Allman and doing the whole completely ridiculous thing. How could this happen? Okay,
1: so how, how did your guitar playing or slide playing improve?
0: Because you start late. Yeah and it still wasn't very good. You know, I didn't spend time on vibrato and all the things that I should have. It just really wasn't very good, but I could play pedal steel and that bought me time and so But how could you play that?
1: Like I mean, that can't be pedal steel can't be an easy
0: instrument to play.
1: Oh, it's really hard
0: and it's <laughs> fascinating. And I really wasn't very good at that either, but there weren't many guys doing it. And that's how I got the gig with Johnny Western, the country guy, because I could play, you know, the cowboy singer, because I could play pedal steel. But another thing happened when I lived in Tennessee, I met Jack Pearson, we had bands together, we did all that. So he certainly lifted my playing up. But I met the Nighthawks and saw them and got to be friends with them. And that blew my mind, you know, next to these, basically the Allman Brothers and renegade the nighthawks man they were totally badass they knocked me out so i got to be friends with them and they'd get me up to jam with them some and so i could play solos you know i could play some Michael, let me back up for a second here this is crazy you got me all wired up talking about this stuff <laughs> i haven't thought about it in a while
1: can, can you also explain the nighthawks because there's more than one nighthawks correct
0: Well, Curtis had a band called the Nighthawks at the same time, the West Coast, but the Nighthawks I'm talking about are from D.C. Right, okay. And they were the bluesiest, most badass band I had seen. They were just, you know, four piece killer. Uh, Before all this happened, let me. I, I started playing guitar, I guess that was about 1975 in phoenix and then i dropped out of college and moved to flagstaff arizona which is a small town in the mountains right and then we dropped out of there a buddy said let's drop out of college and move to lake tahoe and (laughs) i didn't know lake tahoe from lake placid i was like sure which direction is it you know so as it turns out lake tahoe is on the state line with nevada which meant they had casinos well i didn't realize this at all we were going to a ski area
1: Ski bumps. Well, when new friend says let's drop out and go to lake tahoe you have no doubts about doing this like it's not like well what about my schooling it's just it's like okay
0: well i still wanted to play guitar so the schooling didn't yeah it didn't hang you know it's like okay oh, sure i'm up for adventure <laughs> you know i'm 22 or 23 at the time trying to find a way you know that was your question like how did you find your way and it's like well I didn't play very good. I didn't sing very well. You know, there wasn't, I wasn't making a living as a musician, but my heart was all about it. And so, so yeah, I dropped out of school and uh, moved to Lake Tahoe. Well, it turns out the casino's there and it turns out that BB King plays 30 nights in a row, three or four shows a night in the cabaret, which means it's free to get into, but you got to have two drinks, you know, a two drink minimum. So I saw B.B. probably 80 times. I ended up playing blackjack with him. I ended up getting to know the band. I mean, they're like, you're here again? And I'm like, yeah, I just would sit there and watch B.B. because it was free in the casino. And his show was different every night. He didn't have a set list or anything. You know, they would come out and play. And it was just, I fell in love with him. I absolutely fell in love with him. So my style to this day is still very B.B. King oriented. And so, when I would sit in with like the Nighthawks or whatever, I would do that. You know, I didn't play like a rock guy, I don't play fast. I play one note at a time. And, and so, it worked for me, you know, it was all right. So, uh, so that was a key ingredient of getting to know B.B. King. As it, And then, as we know, uh, 35 or 40 years later, I write this song, 20 years of B.B. King, and it's really great for Curtis, and B.B. likes it, and it was just amazing.
1: wow Uh, that is crazy okay so when you were going to school for did you concentrate on maybe becoming a recording person or did you concentrate on um the business end or did you have any idea once you finished school what you wanted to come out as
0: well i went for the recording Be an engineer I thought well I like being in the studio and that'd be great but that's just a brutal job and after working on that for a while it's like I don't want to spend my life getting drum sounds you know (laughs) and so again what happened was I was so turned on by the Nighthawks and by Jack Pearson that all I wanted to do was play live at that point you know so college was a way to as I say to get the degree and do the experience but I didn't I moved back to Arizona as soon as I graduated. I didn't stay in Nashville. Why? My intention, well, truthfully, my intention was to go back to Arizona, which I dearly love, and have a band like the Nighthawks and play that kind of rock and blues all over Arizona. That was the, the plan. And that didn't work out too well, and that's when I ended up going with the cowboy singer Johnny Western. That's how I got connected with him so how did you wind up in
1: nashville
0: well i stayed in uh arizona for about 10 years playing i played with johnny western and then i've had a played in a great rockabilly rockabilly band with a guy named SE willis steve willis is uh, the piano player for uh elvin bishop oh right great piano player and he was in flagstaff so we had this rockabilly band and he would do all the Jerry, Jerry Lee, and I would do all the Chuck Berry, and we were rocking. We were like a Nighthawks, and that ran its course. And so I did a number of different things, and then uh, I was watching. You know, back in the 90s, there was a country music channel called CMT, Country right. Music Television, and Leroy Parnell was on there. The guy I had met with Jack Pearson. Years before, and I said, "Well, hell! If Leroy's country, I'm country." So, that <laughs> I packed up from Tennessee and moved back to, or from Arizona and moved back to Tennessee again. So I've been going Arizona to Tennessee to Arizona to Tennessee. This has gone on a number of times. Uh, and at
1: this point, what are you like as a player?
0: Uh, I worked my way up to being the opening act in in both Flagstaff and Tucson. So I had. I'm singing, I'm playing sometimes songs I wrote and playing front in the band playing my B.B. King style. So it was better. It was better, but uh, that's where my focus was. So I came back in 93. I gotta tell you a little story. One of the things I learned many years ago is that I, I read it somewhere that one thing they had in common of the top business people that had been hugely successful you know guys would go interview them and say you know try to figure out how come this guy's so much more successful than these other guys and the one thing they had in common was they wrote down their goals they were very specific and they wrote down their goals and so I bet Michael I bet I've got 20 of those yellow legal pads somewhere in this house I would write down my goals I would write down my goals I would just I could do anything. What are my goals? What do I want? And this is something I would do regularly and I've taught my kids to do. We do this basically right around New Year's every year and anytime I'm trying to make something come true in my life, I would write it down and it all came true. <laughs> that's that's the, the point of the story. It all came true. I was moving to Nashville in 93 after seeing Leroy on TV and I wrote down I get a job on Music Row, I get a song recorded by a major artist, I have a song that has a gold record. And I moved to Nashville, and I got this job, and I met a writer there, uh, Craig Wiseman, and I said, you know, I've never co-written. In Nashville, it's pretty much co-writing, and I wasn't really writing a lot of songs at that time, but I've always had the ability, I've got hooks and titles, I'm a word guy, I've always had that ability, but I was living in Arizona so I didn't really have an outlet for it. so I meet this guy Craig Wiseman and I say to him I've got a hook for a song I don't know how the song goes but I've got the hook and he says well what is it I said next time you want to talk to me dial 1-800-USED-TO-BE <laughs> and he blinks three times and goes I know how that goes I said do you do he said yeah meet me here tonight we'll write it Well, he's a professional songwriter on Music Row. This is on Music Row. So I'm in Nashville about two months, and I meet this guy, and we write this song. And the next day, the phone is ringing. Brooks and Dunn, Alan Jackson, everybody wants to cut the song. Wow. I've been here. Right. (laughs) I, I remember other guys saying to me, how long you been in town? I'm like 60 days, and they're all giving me the finger going, you know, I've been here 10 years. And So Lori Morgan cut it. Right. And at the time, Lori Morgan was the top, she was triple platinum. She was the top country female singer. And I came to town and wrote this damn song. All I had was the hook. He really wrote, you know, 98% of it. And she sings it on David Letterman, and it's a gold record. And I was like, that's unbelievable. I wrote that down on that yellow piece of paper. <laughs> and it just happened right before my eyes. Okay, so what, ha- what
1: happens when things happen that easily? That's quick. Right. Even even you could have probably not guessed that that would qu- happen that quickly.
0: No, but of course, jerk that I am, I thought, I'm a freaking genius. <laughs> I knew it. I always knew. I'm a genius. I got this. So it took 10 years to get another song recorded. You know, of course, I had the bug. Now I'm thinking that Craig Wiseman, the, the guy that I mentioned, He went on to be maybe the greatest of all Nashville songwriters. He's had 30 number ones. He owns Big Loud Music, which has its own record label, its management, its publishing. He's the guy that signed Florida Georgia Line. I mean, he's just extremely dominant in Nashville. So, uh, So then I really started writing songs, trying to get a writing deal. When I first came to town, you could make $300 a week writing songs for a publisher.
1: Right. Can you explain that deal again? Because I've talked to a few people about this, but in, in your case, when when somebody says, "Okay, we're going to give you a deal, and we want you to write," what do you retain, and what do they retain? Like, how how does that work? You get you, you get put on a retainer, but um, you know, do you you still have the writer's share of the song?
0: I have the writer's share, but not the publisher's share. So you give up all the publishing. All the publishing, because they're okay. a publishing company. Right, and then they recoup everything that they've fronted to you. So that three hundred dollars a week, or whatever the number was, plus the demo costs to take your song, because basically you're writing it acoustic solo, and then they would demo it so it sounds like a particular artist. And so, they're taking the publishing. I'm keeping the songwriting, and they're recouping their investment, and then and, they basically split.
1: And then what's your what's the workday like? I mean, how how how, what's the discipline that you have in terms of writing? Is it is it a nine to five job? Is it a seven and a half hour a day job that you start whenever? Is it even like that? As
0: how do you? Well, huh? it, it's certainly changed now. That I'm talking ninety three, ninety four, ninety five back. And so in those days, yeah, it was ten o'clock every day. You had an appointment to write a song at ten, and if you were really hustling, you'd have another one at two. So you'd write for three hours grab a bite and then you know, you'd know you write two songs a day or at least start two songs a day and crank them out and that of course is foreign. most people write the song when they get inspiration to make an appointment and, and make it a business it, that's a weird kind of mindset <laughs> but you develop the craft so I did get a songwriting deal when I did 1-800-USED-TO-BE that was just me, I had the publishing on that because I didn't have a deal on it.
1: that's right
0: but then I got a deal with Ronnie Millsap's company, Millsap Galbraith. And that lasted a couple years, and we never got anything cut. And they just cut me loose. So that was the end of actual, the formal songwriting. So nowadays, uh, I try to make myself write at least a couple days. You know, Curtis was just here. We wrote four songs in three days. So what happened, Marco, is that I developed the craft of writing. I can write a song, you know, I can craft it. That doesn't mean that it's genius or brilliant, but uh, like a potter, I know the craft of writing songs. So that's what developed over that time. And that was one of the things that works with Curtis because he's so extremely creative, you know. He's the other side of that. I'm the one that sort of crafts to some extent.
1: Okay, so let's talk about that relationship because Curtis is the reason why I'm talking to you. Um, how
0: did you two meet? So after I went to Nashville in 90, uh, no, it was after the first time. So I was living in Tucson and I got into windsurfing. I don't know how, but I got <laughs> bit by the windsurfing bug, but I lived in Tucson, Arizona. Well, the best place in the world to windsurf is in the Gorge, which is about 40 miles east of Portland, the Columbia River Gorge, uh, because it's real narrow and the wind really blows there. And so uh, I had a day job selling houses, I made some money and so we went windsurfing and I went out to a bar and I saw Curtis Elgato and he blew my mind, but I didn't meet him. And then he was on tour and he came to Arizona And I told a couple friends, oh, you got to see Curtis, man. This guy's great. So we went to see him. And my friend in Tucson, George Howard, met Curtis. And they became friends. This, again, was 1991 or so. So George Howard knew Curtis, but I didn't know Curtis. And I moved back to Nashville in 93. And in about 2000, Curtis calls me on the phone and says, I'm coming to Nashville, and my friend George Howard told me I should look you up. In other words, he told George that he was coming to Nashville and he wanted somebody to write When George says, oh, you should call Dave Duncan. So Curtis calls me on the phone out of the blue from the Tucson Connection, and that's how we started.
1: Did you know immediately that you could work with him? Like, how does that work when you sit down with another person to write a song? Do you have, does that... Chemistry happened, and is that
0: important? Oh, it's definitely important. And yeah, it definitely. <clears throat> the thing about Curtis Salgado, he may be the greatest soul blues musicologist on the planet. He knows every song on every record, has read every book. There's no one. There's no one that knows more about American, you know, soul blues music than Curtis Salgado. And maybe jazz too. Yeah, maybe. And so at his fingertips, because he's so deep in it, I would say, I haven't, for example, I'd have an idea. The other day, he said, Oh, we should do this like Percy Mayfield. And I was like, Yeah, my knowledge maybe isn't as great as yours. And he would show eight or 10 different examples. Let's think of it in these terms. So it was just, he was just an encyclopedia. And so if I had an idea or he'd have an idea, he'd say, Here's the way I'm hearing it. And so he stylizes it. I'm more the... It's changed a little bit now because Curtis has written so much and he's gotten so good. But I started to say, I've primarily been the idea guy and the lyric guy. And Curtis makes it sound good. You know, he puts the touch on it and brings the musicality to it. But we have written about 20 songs now. So it's been a... One thing I found when he was living in his old apartment I came to Portland and he's a rock star people come by the house like nonstop, and so I couldn't get him I had to rent a house and lock him inside for a week to get his attention you know to keep him locked in and write these songs and so we had six of them on uh, the beautiful lowdown that was from that session and I locked him away for about a week and we got those and Just last week he was here, and I had him for about four days, three days, and we got four songs. So when I can focus his attention, we just bounce things off each other. You know, we almost finish each other's sentences at this point. But you know, it's all about what would, what does he want to sing? What what feels comfortable? So the phrasing and and the nuances are primarily Curtis-driven. You know, if that makes sense.
1: And, and so as the years have gone by and you've done 20 songs, have all the 20 been recorded or are there some that haven't been recorded? That No, they've all been recorded.
0: Okay. All, so, everything I have with Curtis has been recorded, I think.
1: And is that, like, I, the, the songs that you wrote last week, would you expect that they will make it on an album or
0: are there some that just, yeah, wow? No, no. We don't, we don't seem to have throwaways where you go, yeah, yeah, it's all right. But they all seem to. You know, one of the things I learned in Nashville in the songwriting business is you keep carving on it. It's like that statue and you just keep carving. You go back and rewrite it and fix it and find the weak part. And so it's not just a one session, you know, you work on it from sometimes weeks or months to really get it into the final form. And so with Curtis, we don't have any that we
1: haven't really. So, but that's obviously not the case with everybody you work with,
0: right? True. True, and you may have an a inflated opinion of how many people I work with. Uh, it's not that much. You know, the, the The business is almost gone. The royalties are almost gone, and so I, I don't get songs recorded in Nashville. I did have another song recorded uh, by a guy named Buddy Jewell, and that turned out to be a gold record as well, so. I have two songs recorded by country people, and they were both ended up being on gold records, <laughs> which I had written down on that yellow legal pad, man. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, but that's, that's amazing. Like, I mean, you know, to be on two gold records and to have
0: these two country songs. Right. So, like I say I would write out my goals. Just the other day, I realized that on one of these pads, I mean... I had written, I have the song of the year. I write the song of the year. Well, I was thinking country, but it turns out Walk a Mile in My Blues with Curtis was the blues song of the year. It's like, wow, I wrote that too. I didn't, you know, down on the yellow legal pad, but it came true.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because I often ask people if they write down goals or if if you make goals or have a plan. And more people than not will say no. Right. Um, and it would be more like, well, I was too busy just getting gigs. But there was never a long-term
0: plan. What so- I learned through this is that the universe responds when these desires are written down. It changes the nature of the presentation to the infinite mind that makes things happen when it's written down in a tangible form i don't know why that's what i learned in this book that these business guys said i don't know why it works but just thinking it is not as powerful as writing it down and i mean it's happened over and over in my life i write these things down i live in this house right here i wrote down the house when i had the house in tucson i live in a three-bedroom house with a circular drive and a swimming pool facing east toward the mountains I bought that damn house. And I was like, I wrote this down three years ago. It's unbelievable.
1: (laughs) Okay. So are there goals that you've written down, whether it be music related or not, that you haven't reached yet that you're still striving for? Sure. Sure. And are there goals that, I mean, do these goals remain intact or are there times when you think, well, you know, that's no longer really that important to me.
0: Truthfully, I write them down when I'm in the mood and then I don't even think about it.
1: You don't ba- go back to them you don't refer back to them all the time
0: no not really it's just the act of writing it down and sometimes it'll be three years later i was like oh heck like i say wow <laughs> wow i wrote that down that's crazy can
1: i ask what you might have written down right now that you're still
0: going after you can ask but i won't answer that's part of the deal <laughs> okay that's That's part of the agreement with the universe like no because there's all you know i'm not saying every one of them came true but i'm saying many of the things that have happened in my life that that are important to me and say who i am it turns out i had somehow written that down as a goal years before but no i don't go back and keep looking at it i mean you know, I'm 66 now, and so the, the presentation, you know, what I'm thinking about doing has changed a little bit. You know, now I'm thinking about vacations.
1: And and, and, and they, the goals don't have to be massive, right? This could be something simple, like I'd like to go to Atlanta or something.
0: Right. Or I'd like to vacation four times a year. The more specific you are, right, exactly, I want to go to Atlanta. I wanted to go to South Africa, and we ended up going to South Africa. You know, again, all so part of what I'm saying, Mako, is that the universe is doing all this. The universe is what brought me to Nashville and the songwriting thing, because it wasn't a clear plan where I'm going to... It just, you know, life happened. Life happened. And so I didn't know that I was going to connect with Curtis or see or BB King to where, you know, it was so important that I saw him all those times. We were just living in that. So it all... I don't know so my son is named riley duncan bb's king Uh bb's right. name is riley king so uh, and i got to introduce them a couple times that was fun so tell me tell me about the bb king that you knew well bb was probably in his 50s at the time this was 1977 he was still large He wore really bright tuxedo jackets every night, orange or paisley or, you know, he was really colorful. And I've always thought of B.B. as a spiritual, like a guru, you know, you don't go to B.B. King's show and not be happy. As soon as he plays one note, as soon as he smiles, as soon as he, you're happy, man, whatever the blues is. That's the joyful B.B. King nature, you know, and he played all over the world for so long and made so many people happy. So I was totally attracted to him to the point where I named my son after him rather than after my father. It's like he's my spiritual right. father. B.B. Ah, was just so gorgeous. But he never had a song list. Every show was different. They'd stand up there and play. And he would tell a story. And one of the things he would do on his guitar, he would hit a note while he was talking bear him. and that would be the fifth of the new song the new key they were going to that was his cue I started learning what he was doing and he would give cues to the band because he wouldn't look at him and say hey we're going to play you know three o'clock in the morning he would just start playing so the show was super tight and it was just like I guess I probably saw 80 of them I ended up playing blackjack with him in between shows they would play an hour on and an hour off he was sitting at a blackjack table and he was by himself and I couldn't resist. So I went, sat down. Well, it was a $5 table, which to me at the time seemed like a lot of money. It's (laughs) comical now. And he was playing three hands. And so I got to speak with him and it was 20 bucks before I had to go or whatever it was, but he's just such a gentleman. And you know, right there, I mean, just, I was just so attracted to him. Gosh, baby.
1: There's a, there's a sense of humor that you have, but you also have in your lyrics. How important is that?
0: That's that's the double D thing. I've got this sort of twisted mind, and there is that's uh, if you well, <laughs> it's central to who I am. You know, one time my brother said, you write smart-ass country songs. You're like a Yankee that writes smart-ass country (laughs) songs. Because I didn't have the mama and them NASCAR mentality. But when I moved to town, we're we're going back again. And after I had 1-800-USED-TO-BE, I wrote a song called Harmonica Lewinsky. (laughs) Like about two weeks after that scandal broke harmonica Lewinsky stole the show man that girl could blow (laughs) and so right it's always i've got that twisted sense of humor and when i first got to town my son riley duncan was born and he's a baseball star so he was on this travel baseball team and they were called the sharks and they were six years old And we went and played in, you know, it's Tennessee. And so we played in this funky little town. And the baseball diamond was in a trailer park. And the team was called the Sharks. And one of the dads looks at me and goes, there's a shark in the trailer park. So I went home and wrote this song, there's a shark in the trailer park. And it mentions every kid by name that's on the team. Now, remember, they're six years old. And then I get the moms to come in, the sharkettes, I call them so they all sing there's a shark in the trailer park and so that was my biggest hit in Nashville for a number of years every time I would oh that's the dude that wrote shark in the trailer park so it was that and harmonica Lewinsky (laughs) (laughs) and I thought man you know this is not quite how I pictured Nashville was going to be but but so one of those kids is now the center fielder for the Pittsburgh Pirates. His name's Brian Reynolds. He played in the All-Star game this year. Wow. Yeah. So it's come back around. We ran into some people the other day, and the first thing the kid said, and he's now 27 years old, like, oh, there's a shark in the trailer park. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that was part of that twisted humor, you know, shark in the trailer park and harmonica. You know, Curtis and I, one of the things they taught us in Nashville is – if you're a songwriter with a deal, what they want is up-tempo and positive, you know, and that's one of the things we try to do with Curtis is I I said to him, you know, you've got the greatest voice in in America and you've got the ability to bring joy to everyone. And I don't want you to bring sorrow and sing songs. You know, we don't write cheating songs like say Robert Cray has a lot of songs about cheating and behaving. Right. We don't do that. I'm like, lift people up, man. You've got the joystick and To be able to sing like you and and lift these people up. Now I'm not saying they're all up-tempo positive. You know, 20 years of B.B. King is pretty dark, actually. That's the true story of my divorce. But walk a mile in my blues. So that's part of what makes me double D is that I twist the phrase. I have the phrase and the titles on a lot of these. Driving in the driving rain, all that kind of thing.
1: She didn't cut me loose, which is one of my favorites.
0: Yes, good, good. Yeah, I'm proud of that. You know, that one, he and uh, his manager, uh, they sent me the track on that. So usually we start from scratch, but in that one they had the the whole musical thing and sent it to me. And it just poured out of me. She didn't cut me loose, she set me free. Which is, you know, that is the nature of songwriting. We hear it from all the great writers. They go, man, it just seemed like it just came right through me, you know, it was... Willie Nelson would always say that yeah, I don't know. I sat down and the song was like it already existed. And so that's part of that cosmic connection, connection from the mushrooms of being in touch with the universe that allows these songs to create themselves through me and Curtis. It's it's the joy most joyful thing of my life. You know, I'm so thrilled about it. It's just great.
1: So, but, okay, when you said, uh, I might have this image that you that you might work with a lot more people than you actually do how does how do you work with people? How does that happen like if I can I call you up and say, "Hey, listen, I got some ideas. Can I sit down with you next week when I'm in Nashville
0: or how, how does one work that that would be just fine at this point, there's not many people writing songs because there's when I call cats and say, let's write a song, and they're like, why? You know, nobody's recording them, and even if they do, you're not gonna make any money. I just, so there's very few people that I write with anymore, you know, it's uh, our age. It's, It's not really happening in town very much. So I call and make appointments to write with other people. I'm sort of the instigator on it, just because I enjoy doing it, and it's important to keep doing it, you know? One of the things, Excuse me, Craig Wiseman taught me, he said, I think that my best work is still in front of me, which is a great attitude to have in life. You know, like Picasso painting till he's 90 or whatever. It's like, but yeah, if you have some ideas, man, call me up or write a <laughs> okay.
1: but Okay. So the other thing is when you were working for the publishing company writing, um, would it be Correct to say that you might have written something that maybe got overlooked. Like, Is it possible that you write stuff? And because for a song to become a hit or for a song to exist in a different plane, a lot of things have to happen. And, and it doesn't mean that the song is not good or that you could have a great song that just never sees the light of day. I mean, are there a lot of songs like that that you've worked on that you keep in your back pocket? Hopefully one day it will come out and
0: find the right place? Sort of. The thing about, well, from the beginning, you know, I'm like like I said, I'm not a Southern guy. So I came to Nashville. So for me to be able to capture something that a country singer, a country star would say and feel because, you know, the song's got to be true to him or her. That was a long shot. You know, that's hard to, so I've, I've got a catalog of country songs. Yeah, a bunch of them, uh, but there's just so many. There were, at, back in the 90s, there were about, I'd say conservatively, very conservatively, there were probably four or 500 new songs written every day. You know, and there was a town full of people writing these songs, and here's a quick example. One time the phrase was around, what part of no don't you understand? And that phrase was in the ether and all of a sudden there's 35 songs in Nashville. What part of no, don't you understand? So all the songwriters, they say they have their antenna up, you know, you hear a phrase. And, um, so I've got a bunch of songs, but I'm not necessarily optimistic that the old ones should be cut. I, I do have, I've got a couple, I'm hoping uh, I've got a really great New Orleans song called Red Beans, White Rice, and the Blues that we just wrote fairly recently during the COVID thing. And I'm hoping that a New Orleans artist would sing that.
1: So how does that happen? If if you have the song and you think it's good, and I presume you're not affiliated with a publishing company at this point? I have my own publishing company. Right. Okay, so do you approach artists and say, hey, mm-hmm.
0: is that an easy thing to do? Um Do you know who Hugh Laurie is? Hugh Laurie is an actor. And it turns out he's a New Orleans piano player. And he sells a bunch of records. And so I reached out to him and said, man, I got the song I'd really like you to hear. Can I send it to you? (laughs) And he never replied. So I did it again. You know, I'm just asking permission to send you a file so you could hear the song. And so he wasn't interested, apparently, because he never responded. So there was a time when I had a song plugger. Who would do that work for me? I'd pay her every month, and she would go, pitch songs. Because what you were alluding to earlier, there's a whole process of A and R people, the record label, and the publishing company, the artist, the artist's wife, to actually get one through that maze and get it recorded. It's a daunting task, and so I haven't been very energetic in pursuing that country thing. I mean, I don't, I don't really even listen to that, you know, truthfully. My focus is with Curtis. I had some songs with Nick Schneblin, mm-hmm. who was part of the Trampled Underfoot, isn't that what they were called? Yeah, From yeah. Kansas City. From Kansas yeah. City. He, he did a solo record, and he cut a few. And there's been a couple. Uh, I had a buddy named Jimmy Knowles that was in a band called Sea Level with Chuck wow. back on Capitol Records, yeah. and he cut a few. And so there's some, you know, what we. Nowadays, most of the records, well, many people make records that have their own record label, and it. it's not, a, you know, alligator records. And so I get a few cuts like that, but not really very much as far as the pitching it to record labels or those kind of things. I'm playing golf these days, truthfully. <laughs> okay, so what is the song to you? Is I mean, so what
1: gives you the joy, the most joy out of a song for you? Is it, is it the writing? Is it getting it onto uh, somebody's album or does that matter? Like
0: what's the motivation be- behind writing tunes for you these days? The creative uh, experience, number one, you know, to actually write the song because back when we used to have tape, it's like, man, that tape is empty. And now there's a song on there forever. That song exists and it didn't exist yesterday. So that's, that's the most creative thing I can do is like, a uh, painting I guess or whatever to make a physical even though I guess music's not really physical but you know what I'm saying a tangible from nothing and the joy of writing the song is really what it's all about for me that's definitely secondarily is when Curtis then goes into the studio and records it like we have a song called uh, it's hard to feel the same about love after you and we worked on that a long time and I wrote it on the acoustic guitar and when he finally cut it and it had the horns and all the singers and it was like, oh my God, this is fabulous, man. It's like Christmas, like, whoa, man. I wrote that on acoustic guitar. Listen to it now. It's got everything, you know, and Curtis singing the heck out of it. It's, that's very exciting. So those are the two things for me. It's certainly not the awards and it's there's not much money involved. But creating the song, having Curtis like it, And hearing the final production, that's that's just, there's nothing better than that.
1: I mean, I would imagine also, you had a song recorded by the Holmes Brothers, which I think would be a pretty cool
0: thing. That's true, yeah. I sort of forgot about it, man. (laughs) They cut driving in the driving rain, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The Holmes Brothers, I'm like, oh my gosh, how could this be? You know? (laughs) That's fabulous. There, Yeah, good point. I kind of forgot about that.
1: And how about your own playing? How much are you concentrating on that and your live shows and recording your own albums
0: these days? I haven't made a record in a number of years. D. L. Duncan was the last one, and I think that could have been 2014 or 15 or something. I don't remember exactly. When I play in Nashville, my thing is I do my show, you know, uh, Curtis probably said to you at one point, what made a difference in his career was when he started doing all original music rather than doing cover stuff. And so I do my, I've got about 90 minute show of originals and I would draw eight or nine or 10 people. And I remember one night I had to borrow money from an audience member to pay the sound man. (laughs) So what I'm saying is I'm pretty darn obscure in town and the big thing in Nashville now, because things have changed. That's the whole point is. uh, In the 90s, my thing would be more viable. Now it's 2021, I guess. And tribute bands are the big thing. So the Journey tribute band will be $25 cover and have 500 people there. And I'll have the Muscle Shoals horns with me and play down the street and just nobody really comes. So I don't play live very much. COVID, nationally, you know, you may not be aware, but Tennessee's almost the worst place on the planet for COVID. It's second only to Mongolia. It's clearly the worst state in the union. It's COVID has devastated Tennessee and the governor seems to be on COVID's side. It's just terrible. It's just unbelievable.
1: How was the last 18 months for you? Was it a creative period?
0: Well, last year it was when when the pandemic first hit. I was writing. Yeah, it was. I was writing almost every day and writing with other folks, but it's kind of waned a little bit. It was good for, for Curtis to be here. We worked hard. And I write with Bobby King and some other cats. But in general... Uh, I've probably played more rounds of golf than I have written songs. How's your golf game? It's a, well, almost, almost. <laughs> I have a buddy that I used to be at. David Pinkston was an engineer at Capricorn records and he grew up in Macon and he did all that sea level on. He didn't actually record the Allman Brothers, but he roadied for them and did live sound and Dicky Bets and all that. And he used to be a one of the top golfers in the country. So he just plays so effortlessly. That's great. Uh, my son Riley is now 27, and he can hit a golf ball a mile. And that's the joy, you know, the joy of family and just being on the golf course with my kid. But I always say every other shot, every other hole. That's what I'm good at. You know, <laughs> every other shot, every other hole. It, it's hard to put it all together.
1: But that's not that bad.
0: Well, compared to my game. <laughs> no, I, I can play. It turned out my father uh, back in the fifties, the clubs were still wooden, and he gave me a cut off a of three wood, a three iron. I mean, a wooden one. When I was four years old, I started playing golf. Wow. So. One time, while I was having another psychedelic experience out in Arizona, I realized my father wanted me to be a golfer, certainly not a guitar player, but uh, yeah, that's good. It's good. So I'm really in a good place. Uh, I write songs. I play occasional gigs. We play golf. Life is good. Life is good. I've got this old funky house that's been paid for for a long time. It's gone through the roof value-wise. I don't know where to move to, but it's a valuable, funky old house. Uh, Air conditioning doesn't work very well, so it's hot in the summer and cold in the winter.
1: (laughs) Do you still get the same joy out of songwriting as you used to?
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And, And how have you changed as a songwriter over the years?
0: Well, that's a good question. I don't necessarily... No, uh, you know, I've just gotten better. Uh, One of the things I said earlier that I knew how to craft a song, what happens is Craig taught me at our first meeting when you and I are gonna write a song, we're gonna get it so it stands on its own two feet. We're like building a house here and the structure is gonna be there when we're done with our first session. Now the doors and windows might need to be moved. In other words, the fine points are, are lesser but you get it so you've got an idea. So it stands on its, you know, you can hum it, you recognize it, and then you go back and, and keep working on it. So one of the things for me was I would learn, I learned what didn't work. See, so I don't know what goes there, but what we have right there is not very good. We need to beat that. And so interestingly, at least to me, the way this works, Curtis and I will work on a song all day and finally stop for the day and you get up in the morning and you've got all this solutions to all the problems, everything that needed to be fixed came through the subconscious while you were sleeping. That happens all the time. It's funny. You're not the first person to mention that. Oh, it's true. It's absolutely true. That's how it works. Because again, you know, that infinite mind, the subconscious is connected to it in that song. it just, yeah. Yeah. And that's the joy of working with Curtis Salgado is that he and I share that and, and, things will come up you know we will solve the little problem yeah yeah we got to get something better this line and we'll sit silently for about three or four minutes and then one of us will say something that's like yeah or you know bounce it off and so it's it's a wonderful process and I never get tired of it it's just great
1: well thank you for sharing this um I should I should close this off but I really appreciate the chance to talk to you and I um, appreciate you sharing your wisdom. Can I ask you one more question sure what's what's the greatest thing you've learned from being a songwriter?
0: no, no one of course no one's ever asked me that The greatest thing I've learned is that you know the thing about a great song is that it uplifts uh, up us as human beings it connects at the spot i mean that's the whole thing about music right this is your brain on music we watch a movie the reason we cry is because the music that's played at that scene if there was no soundtrack you're like yeah yeah it's sad but as soon as the <laughs> b3 or whatever hits those chords you're like uh-uh. and that's the power of the beauty of the human soul and the ability to uplift that connection, you know, Curtis and I listened to a lot of gospel music while he was here because it's got that spirit. And, you know, it's hard to be a human. These are sad and hard times. These are dark times and on a lot of different fronts. And to be able to go to a spot that brings joy and then share that, to have Curtis sing these songs and bring joy to audiences, you know, he's been in Switzerland over the last week as you probably know, it's like, this is just fabulous to have these songs and these ideas connecting with other human souls on a pretty basic level. But that's what the exciting thing for me and the fact that it that it really works and it really does connect. That's what I've learned is to stick to the happy side of it, you know, stick to the joy. That's look, you know, look on a bright side, I guess.
1: Yeah. Dave, thank you so much for doing this.
0: Well, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it. I'm not a guy that gets interviewed very often, and I hope I didn't it wasn't too random. <laughs>
1: no, no, it was great. I, I, it was fabulous. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.
0: Appreciate you, brother. All right, talk to you soon.